Welcome to my podcast. I am yours truly, Evan Makovsky. And on this episode, it is my pleasure to have on the chairman and CEO of French West Vaughn. That is Rick French. He founded the firm in 1997. French West Vaughn is one of the nation's leading independent public relations, public affairs, advertising, and digital media agencies. Rick, it's a pleasure to chat with you today. Evan, it's always great to uh, chat with you, my friend. Thank you for uh, taking the time to hear our story. Rick, for people not familiar with your company, what does French West Vaughn do if you could define its services? Well, as you pointed out, we're a independently held public relations, public affairs, advertising, and digital media agency. And you know, in today's world, the definitions of what a PR firm generally does has really shifted to you know a lot of uh, issues management investor relations, content creation, and uh, social media marketing. So while we wear those four major monikers to define what we do, you know, the the business has certainly uh, shifted over the last five years and is accelerating at a rate that very few of us could have seen kind of at this pace coming. And so we produce a lot of interesting and creative content for a variety of global brands, kind of ranges from Wrangler to Volvo to Melita Coffee to uh, Fossil Watches and St. Michelle Winery and Pendleton Whiskey, and I could go on and on. So uh, a lot of well-known consumer brands that many of your listeners are probably familiar with. You just alluded to the fact that changes inside the public relations business are accelerating very quickly within the last five years. So tying this to you in a changing environment, can you whittle down what are your day-to-day duties as CEO and chairman of French West Vaughn in this changing world, Rick? So my my job is really to provide uh, guidance to my team to keep this ship steered in the right direction. There's so many different components of what we do. You know, you've got a creative department, you have paid media, you have paid social, you have native social, you have crisis communications, investor relations. Each one of those is very specialized in terms of the skill set of the practitioners. So, you know, my job is to provide a guiding hand to help them with strategy, to ensure that we're keeping our promises to our clients and and really running the company day to day in this diverse set of sub practice areas that we have under our our roof. You know, we're headquartered in Raleigh, but we have offices throughout North America. And, and it's really to, you know, to provide them the guidance and make sure that they have the resources necessary to keep our commitments that we make to clients. You mentioned it at the top, or I did. You founded French West Vaughn in 1997. So your 25th birthday is approaching for founding your company. Why don't you tell us the story of how it came to be? Yeah, thank you. Well, 25 years ago, I was uh, I was with another firm in the Raleigh area and had kind of risen to the level where I was overseeing both public relations and advertising practice of, of that agency. And those were the two major planks of the firm. And it was a large firm at the time, but I didn't own any equity in what I was building. And so I had an opportunity to go out and start my own with the backing of a angel investment fund that was being run by a gentleman by the name of Lee Trone. 
Lee was the founder and chairman of Trona Advertising. He retired from that business and sold the firm about 10 years ago, but it was a Greensboro-based agency that was pretty large, you know, 150 or so people. And he had started a fund to invest in startup agencies and good ideas. And I was his first investment. I was introduced to him by a, a colleague of mine at the firm I was working for at the time who had gone to work for him. And he had me uh, write a business plan and talk about how this firm was going to be different and what we were going to focus on. And, you know, it, it was a little bit of a contrarian approach uh, that I had in mind because, you know, at the time, advertising was the dominant sector in the marketing service business and public relations was considered a below the line service. And, and any income you generated from public relations was kind of ancillary to the larger income that you would generate from creative services or paid media buying and the commissions generated and so on. And I wanted to create a public relations firm where that was the lead discipline because I felt at the time that uh, we were seeing a shift and that public relations was going to take on the role of being the corporate conscience of a lot of organizations and that it was better at facilitating conversations with multiple constituency groups, whereas in advertising, it was a one-way directed message. There was no conversation to be had. And I also wanted to create a consumer firm in Raleigh when the Raleigh economy was largely driven by healthcare and technology and so on. So I wasn't even focusing necessarily the firm's new business efforts on the industry sector where we were located as much as we wanted to be a national agency that just happened to be based in Raleigh as opposed to a Raleigh agency that was looking for national clients. And so, you know, I set out under the old Richard French and Associates to build that kind of firm and looked far and wide for clients. In fact, I wouldn't accept any local clients in the Raleigh market for two years. I just decided we, wow. if, I, if I was going to pay off the idea of being a national agency, that I need to do so by going as far and wide in finding national and global brands to work with and forego anything locally so that we wouldn't wear that moniker of being a local agency. And so I passed on every single opportunity for two years. And we put pins on the map in Portland and Seattle and Paris and London and Oklahoma City and Texas and so on. That helped pay off that strategy. And pretty soon the trades began to refer to us as a national agency and not a Raleigh-based agency, but a national agency. And that really then helped to get other clients coming to us us that were looking for that kind of firm and didn't really care where we were necessarily located. And the firm kind of took off. And then several years later, I acquired an advertising agency. We were the first, of my knowledge, kind of major PR firm to acquire an ad agency because at the time it was ad agencies acquiring PR firms and acquired Weston Vaughn, which was a well-known Southeast-based regional ad agency and just decided to not lose the equity in their name and put the brands together. That's how French West Vaughn came into being as a brand and that was 2002 and I guess here we are almost 20 years later and about to celebrate the 25 year anniversary of, of the combined firm. That's unbelievable discipline uh, especially monetarily to resist local clients for the first two years of business that's very um, impressive and congratulations on that. So early on, you clearly were a visionary seeing the importance of PR coming into the picture. And I know we've spoken before and that French West Vaughn did 
pretty well, I think, during the pandemic. Why was it so well positioned coming into the pandemic, which you obviously didn't see coming, but it was ready, unlike many firms? Yeah, we did do well. Um, we had a record year in 2020. And the funny thing is that our first quarter was was so-so. There wasn't any real year-over-year growth compared to 2019. And so all of the record part of our year was achieved after the pandemic hit. Why? And it's a good question. It seemed like, you know, we were very early into the digital space. We were into paid digital media and so on. And some of our clients pivoted away from earned media and their focus because 100% of the world's story narrative was focused on the pandemic and outcome of that. So there wasn't a lot of stories to be pitched outside of that. But what they were pivoting to was shopping from home and digital media and by selling your services online. And French West Lawn, because we were very early into building out digital capabilities, was uniquely positioned to, as a PR firm, to really help them leverage their presence in that space. And so a lot of the budgets just shifted into that area and accelerated. There were lower operating expenses overall for the agency because our people weren't traveling as much. They were working from home. And, and it was just kind of a perfect combination of lower operating expenses and being well positioned in the content creation space to really uh, help our clients pivot. And that has carried through to 2022, where we're up about 23% year over year from where we were last year. So cumulatively, we're going to be up over the last 18-month uh, period about 26-27%. And you're right that most firms are just now seeing a bounce back in the latest quarter, but certainly haven't seen that kind of growth. So we feel very fortunate. To no surprise, French West Vaughn has been recognized as a finalist for Large Agency of the Year, alongside being nominated as a finalist in the CEO category. To you, Mr. Rick French in the Platinum PR Awards by PR News, what are some of the awards, whether company or personal, that you're most proud of and why? Well, thank you. It's always uh, nice to be recognized by a, a jury of your peers, whether they are members of the media who vote on these awards or whether they're the judges who help analyze the entries. So we feel very grateful to be in the company of some, some great firms. For me personally, there's a couple that stand out. Very early on in the agency's evolution, we were rated as the number one agency in the country for people who like the people they work with. And that has been something that has always stuck with us, is that we're an employee-driven culture. As I said, I try to provide a guiding hand, but I give my team a lot of latitude in terms of the kind of agency that they want to work for and our policies and procedures and how we interact with one another. And I think that has been a key to our success. We also, uh, a couple of years later, were ranked as the number one agency for work-life balance. And so we've been able to kind of achieve that in the arc of the agency's, you know, almost 25-year history. Now, obviously, we've also been fortunate enough to capture 22 National Agency of the Year honors from various trade publications in our 
24 and a half year history, which is pretty remarkable that we've been able to win almost one per year. And aligns, uh, and aligns Rick, with your vision of making it a national agency. Right. It, it has. And it's been a, a nice payoff for that vision. I guess for me personally, I was inducted a couple of years ago into the prestigious North Carolina Media and Journalism Hall of Fame and following people like David Brinkley and his name's obviously mm-hmm. uh, has a little baggage now, but journalists like Charlie. Rose, who putting his his personal issues aside, but there have been uh, there's just an incredible stable of some of the most well known journalists in our country's history, and to go into that Hall of Fame was something that was very gratifying for me because I, I began my career as a journalist. It's all I really wanted to do after I left a brief uh, career on the pro tennis tour, but I I had studied journalism in college, was a journalism major, I'd been a reporter and uh, stringer for publications and then became a broadcast journalist early on in my career. So to be in a journalism hall of fame with some of the legends of our business was something that was personally very gratifying for me. And then I guess in the last 10 years, I've been fortunate enough to capture four agency leader of the year awards from various trade publications. And that's always a nice testament, but I always feel a little sheepish about that because, you know, for me personally, I don't crave the spotlight like that. It's a team effort and Again, I provide the guiding hand, but I've got some great partners in my firm that do a lot of the heavy lifting with clients. And so they deserve as much credit as I deserve. And I guess because my name's on the door and I was the founder, I get a lot of that. But I see these awards, these personal awards as truly team efforts and not just ones that are focused on me or my vision, because you can have the greatest coach in the world, but if you don't have great players, you're still going to have a losing record. And that's how I've kind of always looked at the composition of our firm. Rick, you're truly an entrepreneur. You just alluded to the fact you're a former journalist, and of course, you have a mastery over the communications field, but you have your hand in many cookie jars from investments to ownership. Please tell us about some of those endeavors, cookie jars, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I'll, I'll take my hand out of the cookie jar, but I will, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the context of endeavors. Yeah, you know, it, it, I really learned from Lee Trone as a mentor when he chose to invest in me in good ideas. And so when I, uh, when Fritz West Vaughn became successful and I had profit distribution from the firm, I had some decisions to make. And it was, you know, do you buy more toys or build things that you don't need? Or do you take the same model and invest in good people and good ideas? And I decided to invest some of those in things that would accrete to French West Vaughn in a positive way. And so I started in film financing many years ago and pivoted to uh, long-form content creation in film and television production. And so my pre-productions banner is very, very active in Hollywood with major studio deals. On a number of projects that I'm producing, I have a uh, minor league baseball team that I own, the Daytona Tortugas in Daytona Beach, Florida. I have a couple great partners that I own that with and we protect the legacy of Jackie Robinson. That's where he broke the color barrier in professional baseball. It was kind of chronicled in the movie 42. 
1942, his story and the story of Daytona and so on, as he made his way up to Brooklyn. So I'm involved in that. I have a, a private equity fund that I fund myself that is invested in celebrity brands. I have a company that I partnered with Brevet Capital out of New York to, uh, to start called Mervalu Beauty that's done by some, it was conceived by some friends of mine. And we have a product line out with the rapper Iggy Azalea that's doing extraordinarily well and is about to gain brick and mortar placement in Nordstrom and a few other uh, high-end retailers. And so I invest in good ideas and good people and things that I like and that are kind of one degree of separation from the things that I know well, which are the entertainment, media, and sports industries and categories. And that kind of guides where I put my money and time and efforts. Following that up, actually, kind of making it a sports analogy, because you mentioned your Daytona minor league baseball team. When you think about, like you said, one degree of separation from your expertise. So in sports, let's say owning a team, you'll take somebody like the Atlanta Falcons and Arthur Blank comes in from the Home Depot. He's not a football guy. He owns though the Falcons. He staffs the um, team with football people making football decisions. Of all your endeavors, how many though are you Let's say, I know you told me you're on weekly calls with your minor league baseball team, but how many of those endeavors are you an active decision maker or are you more just passive and an investor? Because I assume you only have so much time. That's a good question. And I, I tend to work a long day, uh, like a lot of entrepreneurs. The vast, vast majority of the things that I'm invested in, I am a active participant day to day. I actually run my film production company and have, you know, multiple, multiple calls a day with studios and actors and directors that I hire or casting directors, a long list. I spend a, a good deal of time with that. You know, with the minor league baseball team, we have a player development agreement with our parent club, the Cincinnati Reds. So I'm involved on a almost daily basis in emails and conversations with our uh, general manager. And as needed, I'll have conversations with, with the Reds front office in terms of their plans and what they'd like to see happen because it's a parent club relationship in that regard. And so things like that, I'm very involved. In, in something like uh, Marivaloo Beauty, I was very involved in the launch of the Iggy Azalea fragrance line that we launched this summer and the strategies behind it day to day you know, less so. I'll chime in on board calls where needed and again, try to provide some level of expertise and guidance to the company. I've got some other investments in the sports helmet technology company that is, has got a number of patents in play and is about to commercialize a new uh, helmet for the NFL, the NHL, and so on. In a situation like that, you know, I leave it to the experts in that area. And where I will often chime in is about financing, debt structure, things like that, as well as marketing strategy. How are we going to roll this out? What story are we going to tell behind this? So, you know, different levels of engagement on different projects. You have so many, I guess, skills or things that you've dug into, whether you've invested in, you manage people by being a CEO, you're an entrepreneur who can go out and get new business. So what is it about your mental makeup that, and, and your skill set? your skill sets, I should say, uh, plural, that kind of what makes Rick French tick 
And these skills don't always align in people managing people, owning companies, investing in good ideas. How did you kind of, if I could use the term, circle the wagons for Rick French, the business person? Well, thank you. Thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate it, Evan. Uh, you know, uh, for me personally, I I like the challenge of seeing a good idea come to life. And so if I can be an asset in making that happen, then I take a look at it and, and see what I can contribute. I think for me personally, I, I don't get tired because uh, you know, a lot of people at the end of the day just feel kind of worn out in whatever they do. I come home and I'm energized. Mm -hmm. And I don't look at anything I do as work. Everything that I'm involved in are things that I choose to be involved in. They're industries that I enjoy. And so none of it ever feels like a particularly heavy lift to me because it doesn't feel like it's a job. It's just things that if I weren't being paid well to do what I do or wasn't getting a good return, I'd still be very interested in it. And so I only do things that really inspire me and, and kind of pass that litmus test. And so that makes it a lot easier to take off my agency hat at the end of a day, although that, as you well know, that never really happens because you're on call 24-7 to clients. But then I'm able to shift in the evenings, for example, to film work a little bit more because of the three-hour time difference to Hollywood. And so, sure, I may still be working until 12 or 1 a.m. some nights, but I'm in control of that schedule. There's nobody who's dictating my schedule to me, per se. And so it never feels particularly heavy or a burden in what I do. And so I think if there ever comes a point where it starts to feel that way, or I start to feel like it's too much, or I can't handle all of this, then I would start to back away from some of it, or maybe even all of it. I just look at it as if you enjoy what you're doing, it really will not feel like it's like it's a job. And you know, and when you're involved in sports, for example, you know, we have a large sports and entertainment practice of representing teams and athletes and organizations within our agency. That's something that I would be doing anyway, right? I would be going and watching a game. So now I have a rooting interest because I have some of our players or we represent this particular organization. And so again, it doesn't ever feel like it's a job to me to do that. That helps me have a mental outlook that allows me to multitask and manage all of this. Rick, I have a two-part question here wrapped up into one. So I want you to, it's about you and it's about Raleigh. First off, you're a Detroit native and you relocated to the Raleigh market. Now the second part about Raleigh, the Raleigh market has absolutely blown up like maybe few if any markets in the country apple announced a billion dollar headquarters you opened french west vaughn in 1997 so my question is can you share your story coming from detroit and then take us inside what you've witnessed in the raleigh market and why Sure. Yeah. Happy to. So yeah, I, I was born in the Metro Detroit area and I went to, uh, went to college there and said, studied journalism. I had a, a brief cup of coffee on the satellite tour of uh, professional tennis before a uh, kind of a freak situation ended my career. I was 
mugged and stabbed multiple times in an attempted carjacking on a Friday the 13th back in the late 80s. It was 1987. And uh, while I could have continued on with my career and, and rehabbed and gone back, I had finished my four-year degree. I was still working as a journalist while I was playing some weekend satellite tournament events, prize money events, and things like that. And I thought it was a good time to make the pivot into a full-time business career. And so that's what I did. And I went from journalism to an opportunity with a bank holding company in Detroit, and then uh, an agency position, and then was recruited to North Carolina. And, you know, I had no interest in leaving Detroit at the time. Detroit was a major city with four professional sports teams and a lot of culture. And Detroit gets a bit of a bad rap sometimes. It was a great place to grow up. And when I was growing up in the metro Detroit area, it was the fourth biggest city in the United States behind New York City. Los Angeles and Chicago. And it was the height of the automotive industry and the industrial era and so on. And so, you know, it's changed a little and it's coming back. But at the time, I had no intention of leaving the Detroit area. But the opportunity came to me to join a company in the Research Triangle Park area. It was a chemical company. And I happened to be working on a chemical industry account at the firm in Detroit that I was with. And they were persistent in recruiting me. And, you know, I came down here for a visit after saying, no, I wasn't and interested in interviewing on multiple occasions. And they made one last gas effort to get me down here. And they were smart. And they got me down here on a 72 degree day in early February, where it had been, you know, about single digits in Metro Detroit the morning that they contacted me. I saw an opportunity down here for a nice quality of life. It was a really good job opportunity with a nice pay increase at the time. And while I wasn't looking to make the move, it was, uh, it was too good of an offer to pass up. And that's how I landed here. And then it just became, even after I left that firm, it became about, it was now home. It's a beautiful area to live. It's a beautiful area to work. And, you know, it's been rated the number one place in the nation almost every single year to do business. It is among the top two or three cities for relocations where it's, there's just a modern day boom town, as you point out, of people and companies moving here because mm -hmm. of the climate both the economic climate and the actual climate. You're near the, the ocean, you're near the mountains. It's a wonderful place to live. And it was a low cost of living area. Now, I don't think you could put that label on it anymore. Uh, in the last decade, it's surpassed cities like Dallas, Atlanta, a lot of major cities for in terms of a higher cost of living. Well, to your point, Rick, I believe that the second most Americans are relocating here to Austin, Texas. That's right. And and, and I think just like Austin, what you're seeing is it, it is stretching the infrastructure of the region a bit. Housing prices have gotten absolutely absurd. There's some growing pains with the fact that triangle market is now, you know, one of the 20 largest in the country and just, just skyrocketing. And I think the prediction in the next, I think, 10 years is that it will be one of the 15 largest metro areas in the United States. And that's as a result of the corporate relocations and the number of people who are coming here and, and the focus on in areas, growth areas, whether it's biopharma or technology or pharmaceutical development uh, has always been major here. It's becoming the kind of a, a different kind of Silicon Valley. And so, you know, for us, as I mentioned earlier, the strange thing is those aren't areas necessarily a focus for the agency, but what happens is it helps bring good people to the area. 
it's bringing more attention to the area. And so Raleigh has become now a major, fairly major industry market where it used to be you'd look for an agency in New York or Detroit or Chicago or, you know, take your pick. Raleigh's now one that is shortlisted for a lot of companies that are looking for an agency. And, you know, we have offices in New York and Boston and Los Angeles and Tampa and soon to be San Francisco. We're completing an acquisition of a San Francisco-based PR firm that I'll probably be announcing later this week or early next. And, and, you know, so we cover off on all of that. But uh, but when you get a migration of people and companies to the area, you're bringing more talent and more awareness. And I think that's going to be good for the agency sector here. It's going to be good for the region as a whole, because to your point, when you have an Apple that's announcing that it's building a major, major campus in the RTP area, and that's along with Google that has announced that they're building a major campus in Durham, you put those two tech behemoths both in the same area, and it's going to create some interesting dynamics for the future of the region. I also think that it's all those factors that you just named, and these companies would like a stranglehold on... UNC Chapel Hill students, Duke students, NC State students, and I think that that also is a factor. Maybe I I could be wrong, but in companies coming to Raleigh. Oh, I think you're 100% accurate on that, Evan. You know, the, the Triangle area has the second highest concentration of colleges and universities and number of students to the Boston-Cambridge corridor. And yeah, they're looking for really young talent and young and smart and leading edge we all are comfortable with what we're comfortable with, right? So, you know, myself, I grew up in an era of of print media and broadcast media and, you know, traditional media. And and everything has changed very dramatically here in terms of ways in which we communicate with one another. And the same principles apply to every single industry sector and the talent that's coming out of these universities, which are world-class universities, all concentrated in one area, is just absolutely amazing. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. They're looking to tap that talent uh, and grow it within their organizations. And I think it's a really smart play on all of these companies' parts. Wrapping up here with Rick French. He's the chairman and CEO of French West Vaughn. And he does many, 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 many other things as well. You touched on the fact that you were stabbed in 1987 and that ended your professional tennis career. Without digging into that and what happened, certainly um, I would imagine being in as that assault was going on, you did not know if you were going to live or not. And uh, being faced with the loss of life is not something that every human being or losing their own life is always faced with during the course of life, but you were. And so how is that um, terrible tragedy, terrible thing that happened to you though, maybe shaped your perspective for all these other great accomplishments you've gone on to have, and maybe even made you stomach failures along the way? 
Yeah, you know, it, it, it is about perspective. You know, it, my situation was just to close the circle on that was an attempted carjacking. And so in a really affluent neighborhood. So you can't even say wrong place at the wrong time. I was it's in a place that was very unexpected for this to happen. But things do happen. And the fact that I was an athlete probably helped save my life because physically I was I was pretty strong. It was more difficult for the assailant to drag that serrated knife through through and hit any vital organs. But I was also very lucky that in the six stab wounds that I suffered that none hit a vital organ because that might have changed everything and probably would have. So, you know, staring down that situation and surviving it, once I, you know, I made it through it, you know, I was unconscious for three days, basically, you know, but once I did come out of that, I never was sitting there thinking I'm going to die. I was just sitting there thinking, okay, well, rehab is going to be rough for tennis. And what do I want to do here? And I just pointed forward rather than looking at backward. You know, and I'll tell people when I give lectures, and I I don't talk about this story often, but when I'm asked about it, you know, what I'll say is it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And that's because it redirected my focus towards a business career and away from trying to be the next Jimmy Connors or Bjorn Borg or Yvonne Lendl. And, And I wasn't that level of player. I was a very good player and good enough to play professionally, but I wasn't at that level. And so for me, it was a bit of a blessing in disguise. And so So, you know, the way I look at things is that I've stared that down and I came through that. So everything else that I'm doing is just business or it's just life. Mm -hmm. And you have to keep that in perspective. As difficult as something may be today, the next day may be something entirely different, you know, and your outlook may change. And so, you know, I think you just have to keep a positive attitude. You have to have a vision and believe in what you're going to accomplish. And then just set out and do it. So many people get tied up in the idea that can I do this and self-doubts you know, as we talked about in the beginning, you know, it did take, it was either brilliance or stupidity. I'm not sure which when I set out and said, I'm not going to take any local clients for two years, because obviously local clients were the low hanging fruit, right? We were best known in the Raleigh market. It would be easy to have, you know, taken on the local clients, but then I felt like we wouldn't achieve the vision of what I wanted to build. And so I think the point is that have a vision, follow the vision, try not to deviate from it. There will be circumstances that might necessitate it. But if you do that, you've got a better chance of being successful. You know, when I when I started my film production company, and now I've got projects set up at major studios all over the place, I'm about to announce a major one that I'm doing with Dwayne Johnson and George Lucas. Together, we're partnering for a Netflix project. I've got another one set up, a music biopic that's set up at the major studio STX. I can go down the path. I have no business being in Hollywood per se. I'm not in Hollywood physically. I'm not, it's not 100% of my business, but I had a vision for the kind of stories we wanted to tell and the ability to put these things together. And it's come to fruition with some some fascinating people. And that provides a halo for French West Vaughn. And so, look, if you set out to do something, most people have the ability to do it if they can get out of their own way in making it happen. I try to counsel, you know, young professionals and those that are looking at career changes to be focused, have a vision and go for it. And you can make anything happen. 
on a more positive note, and I don't even know if we need to answer this question. I was going to say, what does the future hold as we approach 2022 for Rick French and French West Vaughn? But we know that a uh, acquisition of a San Francisco PR firm is coming. We know that you're up 20-something percent over a record year last year. We know awards are on the horizon. We know you have multiple endeavors. Is there anything else you want to add? <laughs> Boy, that all sounds pretty good, actually. Yeah, we can leave it. Thank, thanks for pointing all that out. Uh, no, look, we've got our. We'll have our 25 year anniversary on. Yeah, April 1st will be the 25th birthday. I founded the agency. Well, I officially incorporated it on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th of 1987, and officially opened our doors on April 1st. And I did that to have the luck of the Irish behind us. And because uh, a lot of people thought it was foolish to be opening an agency in the Raleigh market. So April Fool's seemed like an appropriate day to do that. You know, going forward, I think, you know, we're just going to celebrate our clients and we're going to celebrate our people. We're going to celebrate the fact that uh, a lot of people over 25 years have contributed to the success of the agency, not just the people that are here today, but everybody along the journey. And so we're going to try to invite them back and have them be part of uh, the agency's celebration. And, and in terms of a vision going forward, you know, for me, it's to, I never set out to create a firm that was based on size or that was driven by being in a particular position in the rankings. Those things have happened organically because we've had a idea of who we are and what we wanted to do and the kind of work we wanted to do. And so for me, I think the, the goal is to continue to refine that vision and make sure that we're continuing to do the kind of work we want to do for the kind of clients we want to work with. And if we do that and do the work really well, then growth and everything that comes along with it will take care of itself. And so, you know, as we look at the next quarter century, I certainly won't don't expect to be running the firm for another 25 years. Then, you know, for me, it's to make sure that we have everything in place to sustain the firm's legacy in the same way that a firm like J. Walter Thompson still exists long after the founders uh, are long gone. And for me, it's to make sure that we have all of the assets in place to ensure that happens. Rick French, chairman and CEO of French West Vaughn and many other labels can be applied as to what he does. Thank you so much for the time and the conversation. Thank you, Evan. I always enjoy chatting with you and, and congratulations on the podcast. You've had some really great guests and I'm, I'm honored to be asked to, to join that group. Well, that's going to wrap it up. I want to thank Rick French, the chairman and CEO of French West Vaughn. I am Evan Makovsky and we will see you on the next episode.